0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. You were listening to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt. And today, I am with Peter Adamson to talk about his new book, Don't Think for Yourself: Authority and Belief in Medieval Philosophy, published by University of Notre dame, twenty twenty two. In this engaging study into the history of philosophy and epistemology, Peter Adamson provides an answer to a question as relevant today as it was in the medieval period. How and when should we turn to the authoritative expertise of other people in forming our own beliefs? He challenges us to reconsider our approach to this question through a constructive recovery of the intellectual and cultural traditions of the Islamic world, the Byzantine Empire, and Latin Christendom. Adamson begins by foregrounding the distinction in Islamic philosophy between taqlid, or the uncritical acceptance of authority, and ishtihad, or judgment based on independent effort, the latter of which was particularly prized in Islamic law, theology, and philosophy during the medieval period. He then demonstrates how the Islamic tradition paves the way for the development of what he calls a justified taklid, according to which one develops the skills necessary to critically and selectively follow an authority based on the reliability. This book proceeds to reconfigure our understanding of the relation between authority and independent thought in the medieval world by illuminating how women found spaces to assert their own intellectual authority, how medieval writers evaluated the authoritative status of Plato and Aristotle, and how independent reasoning was deployed to defend one Abrahamic faith against the other. Peter Adamson is a professor of philosophy at LMU Munich. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Great. Well, this is uh, very exciting. I've been listening to your History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast for a while, and when I saw that you were publishing a new book, I uh, had to pick it up and set up an interview. But first, before we get into what the book contains, tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about your academic background, and what was the impetus for, for writing this book, uh, provocatively titled Don't Think for Yourself?
0: Right. Okay. Thanks. Well, my... Uh career goes back to the 90s, I guess, so people can try to work out for themselves how old I might be (laughs) by uh, me saying that I was an undergraduate at Williams College from 1990 to 1994. And then I went and got my doctorate at the University of Notre Dame. And to make a long story short, the Williams philosophy department was rather historical in its approach. And that led me to kind of think, actually, that the choice to make if you wanted to be a professional philosopher was just which period in the history of philosophy you should be an expert on. It didn't occur to me to be like just a philosopher, like an analytic philosopher, an epistemologist or an ethicist or whatever. So I was kind of thinking, well, I definitely want to be a philosopher. Which period of the history of philosophy should I be a specialist on? And I really liked ancient philosophy, but i was a little bit worried that if i went into working on plato and aristotle who i loved and still love that there might be just sort of too many other people working on them and it might be hard to find something new to say and so i decided to tackle medieval philosophy instead i'd already started learning latin when i was in uh, my undergraduate degree and so that's really why i went to notre dame intending actually more to be a specialist in Latin medieval philosophy insofar as I had a plan, at least that was my plan. But then while I was at Notre Dame, I got really interested in Neoplatonism, which is a traditional philosophy that started in late antiquity. So people usually trace it back to Plotinus, who lived in the third century um, CE. And the thing about Neoplatonism is that it has this massive influence across many cultural, cultural boundaries so there's neoplatonism in arabic there's obviously the greek neoplatonism the original greek neoplatonism which continues on into the byzantine tradition and there's latin neoplatonism so my idea was to kind of follow that whole story for the rest of my career and that's really why i got into philosophy written in arabic or philosophy in the islamic world as i usually like to call it um Then I got a job at King's College London in 2000, and I moved to the LMU here in Munich in 2012. And I guess, again, to make a long story short, my historical interests have in a way shifted since then. So I I work more on the reception of ancient philosophy in Arabic than I originally intended to, I guess I would say, but I've tried to maintain an interest in late ancient philosophy, latin medieval philosophy and so on um and one thing that's helped me do that is actually something you already mentioned which is my podcast the history of philosophy podcast which i actually started a long time ago so back in 2010 when i was still at london and that has covered a lot of different traditions many of which i knew nothing about before i tackled them in the podcast like indian philosophy and africana philosophy but um the reason i wrote this book is uh sort of twofold one is that I was invited to give a couple of lecture series, one at Notre Dame, um, the Conway Lectures in 2019, and another, the Carlyle Lectures at the University of Oxford in early 2020. So that was right before the pandemic started. It was the last thing I did before the pandemic happened, actually, was those lectures. Um, and so so this book is just based on the lectures I gave at those two universities, but thematically it really grows out of noticing a kind of pattern of themes while I was doing the podcasts on philosophy in the Islamic world and Byzantine philosophy and Latin medieval philosophy so I was sort of looking for a way to write a book that spanned all three cultures and give a more diverse picture of what medieval philosophy might be but I knew I couldn't like do all of medieval philosophy again as I just had done in these um many podcast episodes so i was trying to find a kind of theme that would cut across again those cultural boundaries um, and would be something i could talk about both in islamic philosophy and byzantine philosophy and latin medieval philosophy so that's really how it came about
1: sure you've mentioned already a few times that these kind of three areas of geographic interest, Byzantium, Latin Christendom, and the Islamic world. Uh, Tell us how extensive your study is, not only geographically, but chronology. It seems that you're covering a lot of ground within this this short volume.
0: That's true. So it's thematically quite focused, or at least I tried to make it thematically coherent, not just coherent, but also focused to make that possible. But then chronologically and culturally slash geographically, it's quite broad. Chronologically, I'm following the lead of a colleague of mine and friend, John Marenbon, who works at Cambridge University, who likes to talk about the so-called Long Middle Ages, which might start, I don't know, like 5th or 6th century CE, and go all the way up to the time of, let's say, Leibniz, so or someone like that, so maybe the 17th century. And the reason for that, well, it's a long story, I guess, the reason for that. But one reason is that if you think about medieval philosophy, at its core at least in christian europe as being about scholasticism the roots of scholasticism go back to late ancient authors like augustine and boethius and scholasticism persists down to the 17th century so they, i think that would be john maron bond's main rationale for talking about the long middle ages although i don't want to speak for him but the same thing is really true in the islamic world so you have uh a later start for philosophy in the Islamic world, because it gets going in around the ninth century. But it again, just sort of keeps going um, pretty much in a continuous way, really past the 17th century, even so down to the 19th century, say. And although I don't follow the story of this book that far, I do talk about some authors who people might call post-classical, like from the 15th century, let's say. So chronologically, it's, it's casting quite a wide net And then obviously the same thing is true in terms of the uh, languages and cultures I'm looking at. So I'm looking at Greek philosophy from late antiquity through the Byzantine tradition. I'm looking at philosophy in the Islamic world, written also by Jews and Christians, not only by Muslims, but in Arabic. I do have one text that I quote from Persian as well, but it's mostly Arabic. And then Latin medieval philosophy, obviously.
1: So, you've mentioned that your book, you wanted your book to be thematically focused. And uh, reading from the back of it, dis- its description, the main focus seems to derive from this distinction, this distinction between taklid and istihad. Uh, but please help us understand what these two concepts are with a little more elaboration and what the milieu of islamic thought from which these concepts arose like why did jurists and theologians and philosophers in the islamic world really wrestle with these two concepts
0: okay well actually maybe i'll um sort of sneak up on your question but sure. first sort of saying what the general philosophical issue here is before we kind of get into these terms which in a way point towards an answer to the question so the question is pretty straightforward and it's just the question of how epistemically responsible people should be forming their beliefs. And one obvious answer to that would be something like, don't form beliefs unless you have good evidence that you understand to be good evidence for forming that belief, right? So like, don't believe there's a cat on the mat unless you can see there's a cat on the mat and you know that there's no optical illusion going on or something like that, right? But if you think about it, Actually, that's very demanding, right? So suppose the question is uh, something like does China exist and you're trying to trying to decide whether there's such a country as China and it turns out you've never been to China, right? So uh, you might think, oh well, I had to go to China and check whether it's there just as I need to like check whether there's a cat on the mat before I can believe that there's a cat on the mat. And that's obviously ridiculous right so we would normally allow people to form beliefs on the basis of testimony for example like you talk to someone who's been to china or maybe through representations like photographs of china or books like histor- histories of china and so on so in general it looks like um you might allow yourself to believe things and even take yourself to know things on the basis of information that's being given to you by other people, right? And so the question is basically, when are you allowed to do that? And the reason I'm interested in this question, or the reason I was interested in it when I wrote the book, and in a way it's become an even more salient and important question since then, is that the use of testimony from, especially from experts and authorities, turns out now to be one of the most contested issues in our time, right? So think about things like um, people trying to decide whether it's safe to take the COVID-19 vaccine, right? This is the most obvious example I could give. I actually mentioned something about this in the preface to the book because the the debates around COVID were just emerging at the time I was writing the book. Um, so what's happening there is that we have some people who are presenting themselves as experts and other people who are not experts, like who have no medical degree, don't even know how vaccines work are listening to these experts and trying to decide whether to take their advice and it's quite striking that a lot of people are not taking their advice right and of course you can say the same thing about other big political issues like climate change for example so I think a lot of us feel that something has gone wrong when people just refuse to take the advice of experts but on the other hand we are also sympathetic to the intuition that you shouldn't just sort of let yourself be pushed around by so-called experts, right? You shouldn't just believe things because people say that they're true. You should actually like understand why they're supposed to be true. So that's the philosophical issue. And, um, so now coming more to your question, um, something that kind of occurred to me thinking about that is that in the Islamic tradition, they had a pair of really nice, helpful words for talking about this issue, which actually would be nice if we had them in English. So as you said, the word taklid basically means uncritically accepting other people's authoritative testimony. So for example, um, let's say I'm a Muslim, and the reason I believe that God exists is because my parents told me that God exists, or because the imam says that God exists, or some religious authority says that God exists. So I can't prove that God exists. I actually don't even know any good reasons for thinking that God exists, but I still believe it. So that's something they would describe as taklid. Ijtihad is the reverse. So Ijtihad literally means making an effort. So you're practicing Ijtihad when you, on your own initiative and through your own effort, try to figure out whether something is true or at least to verify that a certain claim is true. So this would sort of be the equivalent of like being told that a vaccine is safe and effective. And rather than just taking that on authority going off and trying to figure out whether it actually works on your own resources. And um, in the book, I I point out that, or at least I argue, I think it's pretty clear that um, these words, taklid and ijtihad, first emerge in a legal context. So the contrast is between legal scholars who are just taking uh, the legal principles that they use from other legal scholars, they're just sort of taking over their judgments and trying to imitate them. Sometimes people translate uh, taklid as imitation, actually. So these would be um, lawyers or jurists who are practicing taklid, And on the other hand, there would be people who are engaging in ijtihad, which means that they're using their own legal reasoning to try to figure out what the right judgment would be. So you could almost think of, um, of in this context, you could think of taklid as kind of just following precedent, just following legal precedent, whereas ijjihad would be more like setting a new legal precedent. And then finally, I kind of extend that to look at the same issue in theology and philosophy and point out that there's this same kind of contrast between taqlid and ijtihad, and that in general, scholars and intellectuals of the Islamic world were quite sniffy about people who engage in taqlid. So they say, well, that might be... Op- okay for like common people but we scholars we practice ijtihad. we figure out everything for ourselves we know why the things that we believe to be true are true we don't just follow other people's advice
1: so we've been speaking about belief but in your second chapter we go to another concept which is knowledge and the islamic world and also latin christendom we're very much indebted to uh Aristotle and Aristotle's epistemology which had very high standards of acquiring uh, well very high standards for one to acquire true knowledge uh can you elaborate for us how did Aristotle and his medieval c- commentators define knowledge as opposed to the belief we've been speaking of And how did they respond to some of the immediate issues arising, such as skepticism or something like this?
0: Right. So this follows immediately on from what we were just talking about. So imagine that you have placed upon yourself the burden to engage in ijtihad. So you're trying to figure out everything for yourself. And then the question is like, oh, okay, so when would I count as having figured it out? Like, when can I take myself to know something? So then if you're a philosopher, you look for the answer to that question in Aristotle, or at least if you're a certain kind of philosopher, an Aristotelian philosopher, and in particular, you're going to look at a work of Aristotle's called the Posterior Analytics, which, as you just said, places very severe constraints on which kinds of beliefs count as knowledge. So this is a bit of a long story, but the kind of upshot of it is that um, a belief only counts as knowledge if it is either a first principle which can't be doubted, or is derived from first principles through a certain kind of argument. And this argument would be a demonstrative syllogism. And then there are further very strict constraints on demonstrative syllogisms. So these are arguments, they're they're well-formed arguments, logically speaking. So of course, they're valid. And of course, the premises have to be true. But in addition to that, the premises need to be necessarily true, And they need to be universally true. So they need to be about whole classes of things in the world. So what that means is that you cannot know in this strict sense that the cat is on the mat, because that's about a particular state of affairs, what you could have knowledge of. So the the Greek word here is episteme, and people sometimes suggest translating this as understanding rather than knowledge, precisely because it has this very universal nature. Um, You could have understanding episteme about cats but not about this cat right here sitting in front of you. And what you would have to know or understand about cats would be necessary properties of cats that are true of all cats, just in so far as they are cats. So for example, that cats are animals or that cats are carnivores or something like that. So this is like an extremely ambitious theory of knowledge, right? This makes knowledge, or perhaps we should say understanding. Again, the Greek word is epistemic. The Arabic word is ilm. The Latin word is scientia so the the picture of knowledge we're getting here is of systematic necessary completely rock solid justified based on first principles ultimately beliefs that derive from this process of demonstrative proof and anything less than that either won't count as knowledge at all or will count as knowledge in some kind of weaker sense so one of the interesting things is that we actually see philosophers. So um, Avicenna or Ibn Sina, who's one of the heroes of my book, um, he he suggests that you could actually count someone to have as having knowledge if their knowledge is based on testimony, which sounds more like takvid, right? Um, or you might say that there's some kind of knowledge that you could have of particulars; it's just not demonstrative knowledge, etc. Um, but actually, the main point of this second chapter that you mentioned is not uh so much to look at like different ways of weakening the aristotelian paradigm What my focus is more on the fact that if you stick with the aristotelian conception of what knowledge is that's kind of an invitation to skepticism because if you say well you only know something if you can like prove it with necess- necessary universal demonstrative syllogisms right then it's very easy for someone who's skeptically minded to come along and say, well, it seems like we hardly ever have knowledge like that, or maybe we never have knowledge like that. Um, at best, our beliefs are only like justified in some weaker sense than what you're saying. And so I think that what tends to happen in the medieval period is that the Aristotelians start to gently lower the requirements for what would count as knowledge in order to stave off this worry that knowledge becomes completely unattainable. So I actually, by the way, I think that's a general feature of the history of philosophy that epistemologists propose theories of knowledge and then skeptics come along and say, well, on that theory of knowledge, knowledge is unattainable. And then the epistemologists who don't want to be skeptics modify their theory of knowledge to make it harder for the skeptic to show that knowledge can't be attained. So we see that, for example, with the Stoics the Stoic epistemologists and the skeptic opponents that they had in antiquity. And we see it again, for example, with Avicenna and Ghazali, and we see it again in Latin philosophy and so on.
1: One problem then with attaining, say, full commitment to istihad is a circumstance. Many of us would love to know about subject X, as you say, COVID vaccines or something like this, but don't have the time, ability, resources. Uh how does the notion that of you elaborate of justified Taklid solve this issue of of the kind of overly rigorous proposals of Ish Jihad? And and how did this question or how did uh, justified Taklid play into questions about faith and and religious conviction?
0: Right. So the, now we're getting into chapter three. And
1: you're uh, seeing a pattern, pattern here, here Peter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and actually I suppose also though we're finally getting to the title right so the yes! title as you said is provocative and it's don't think for yourself authority and belief in medieval philosophy so the idea is that we're going to accept that taklid or what I'm calling justified taklid is appropriate in certain circumstances and this is something um for which I take inspiration from Al Ghazali. This supposedly skeptical critic of Avicenna because there's a really interesting passage in Ghazali's intellectual autobiography, The Deliverer from Error, where Ghazali says that you can recognize that Muhammad was a genuine prophet by sort of attending to the things he said and the things he did. So he kind of behaved and talked in the way that only a prophet would behave and talk. That's the idea. And then he compares this to verifying that someone is a doctor by kind of looking at what they're like. And unfortunately, doesn't say very much about this. But the point is clearly that you could be in a good position to take medical advice from someone without necessarily being a doctor yourself, right? So this is what we want. So we want to be able to take advice from experts without being experts ourselves. As you just said, this is extremely necessary, right? So think about the two examples we were talking about before vaccines and climate change. So suppose that I'm so desperate to make sure that I know exactly what's going on with vaccines that I like go off and get a PhD in vaccinology or whatever they call it, or immunology, I guess that's what it would be called. Well, fine. But now I just spent years of my life doing that. I don't have time and resources to also go off and become a PhD in climatology, right? So maybe I'm now in a position to do Ijtihad for vaccines, but I'm not in a position to do Ijtihad for climate change. And of course, even if I did a second PhD on climate change, there's any number of other things that I might want to know about. Right. So as I say in the book, like maybe I want to know what's the best way to understand Shakespeare. Right. So now do I have to do a PhD in literature as well? So clearly this is ridiculous. This is never going to work. We can't get around, we can't get around the, uh, need to consult experts. So what Hazali says is rather, or at least what he suggests is that rather than becoming an expert, what you should do is you should put yourself in a position where you can identify experts. And the kind of philosophical puzzle there is how to identify someone as an expert without being an expert yourself. So how do you know that someone is a qualified immunologist without being an immunologist yourself? And I think that's actually a very deep puzzle, uh, which is maybe the reason why it's such a difficult terrain politically and culturally at the moment so for example should we accept degrees from well-respected universities as being sufficient for considering someone an expert um but anyway i I call this justified tuck the thought being that even though you're not engaging in ijtihad because you're still not figuring it out for yourself you're still taking someone else's authoritative advice you're doing it on good grounds because you have verified that the expert is really an expert. And even though this in practice could get quite difficult, of course, the basic insight is pretty simple, which is that it's a lot easier to verify for yourself that someone is an expert than to be an expert yourself. So you can test them or you can look at something like their qualifications, as Gonzalez says, you can look at the way they behave and talk. Right. Is it consistent with what you'd expect from a doctor, say? Um, and in fact, we do this all the time. Right. So we actually do, like, for example, when we go into a doctor's office, we look and there's a diploma on the wall and we kind of assess whether they seem confident and it seems like they know what they're doing. Right. And of course, that can be misleading. But I think it's actually the rational way to behave. And it's something that um, we can understand through and out al- analyzing these discussions of Lead. That went on in the Islamic world
1: is justified talk lead a practice that needs conditioning or development or support. It just seems that it's a concept that, and maybe I'm I'm not the the, the person to to really question it this way. But it seems that self evident that anyone who doesn't have expertise in a field would go to someone who is has more expertise is was there something that was common in the Islamic world in which this debate was going on that, that such, that a concept like justified talk talk lead was, was more, uh, for lack of a better term, revolutionary or important. It's, it's, this is a a huge kind of epistemic solution that to, to this, this problem of of how to base one's belief in because to me, it just seems, okay, I don't know about uh, X. I'll just go to the, the expert. And and I understand that there's the second order of belief about forming beliefs about who are experts. Uh, but then that seems also just kind of obvious. Do, do, do you follow?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so your point is that, it, like, from the very fact of what I just said, right? We do this all the time. It seems like it can't be that hard, or it seems like it's not, it can't be that deep a point. Mm-hmm. I think actually it is a deeper point than it might look like because it might be one of these things that's obvious once someone's points it out, right? (laughs) So in particular, the fact that our, our job as responsible agents turns out to be on the second order rather than the first order is think is not something that's widely appreciated. So it turns out that being a responsible epistemic agent is about not forming your beliefs so much as forming your methods that help you to form your beliefs. In other words, it's about form having the right beliefs about your beliefs, mm. right? Or and about other people's beliefs, like whether they're likely to be expert beliefs. And so, I think that actually is a subtle enough point that is worth making in a philosophical context. But you're also right that it's culturally very resonant in the Islamic world, precisely for the reason I said earlier, which is that if you want to count yourself as being an intellectual, as one of the so-called ulama, like the learned, right, then the the kind of badge of approval for that is that you engage in ijtihad, right? You're not supposed to engage in taklid, at least not in the area of your interest, right? So it w- it counts as an insult to say to a philosopher, "Well, you're just following the authority of Aristotle," which is what Ghazali said. So you just think, you just think that because Aristotle says so. And similarly, the philosophers accuse the theologians of just following their own um theological inspirations without actually thinking things through and um i think so i think it's interesting to see the ways that for example jurists allowed themselves to perform tuck lead in certain contexts right so for example they might uh, get as far as reassuring themselves that they're following the right school of law but then within that school of law they just take over all of the precedents so they just follow the principles of the school of law having Engaged in this process of justified taklid by figuring out which school of law they owe allegiance to. Um, another point, by the way, that's important both culturally and philosophically is that it might be that there's some topics on which you actually shouldn't perform even justified taklid. So, an example from the historical context is that some theologians thought that even normal people, so to speak, so not the learned or not the professional theologians, but everybody, every Muslim should at least be able to understand a simple proof for God's existence. And the reason for that is that they worried about the fragility or vulnerability of beliefs that weren't based on at least some form of like individual judgment. Because if you, if your beliefs are just like based on what other people say, then if someone else comes along and says something different, you might believe them instead, right? Like it's hard for you to tell. And so, um, there, the suggestion here is that when the chips are really down, you shouldn't go with testimony or authority, even if you have good reason to do so, you should actually figure it out on your own. And I think that actually that again, seems philosophically plausible, like the higher the stakes, the less likely you'd be to just follow someone else's opinion. Right. Um, the more you would want to go look for yourself. Right. Um, or if the life of a loved one was on the line or something, you'd say, you know what, I'm actually going to go look and make sure that, you know, the bridge is secure before I let my family walk across it. I'm not just going to take your word for it. That sort of thing.
1: Moving on, uh, but related to authority, you mentioned in your previous answer about, right, uh, Hazali saying you can't just follow Aristotle because that's what he says. But it seems that in the interreligious environment of the Mediterranean Uh, utilizing pagan sources by philosopher was, was very common, especially Aristotle and Plato. Uh, How did philosophers utilize uh, pagan philosophers for their desired ends? And then what kind of trouble would they run into with such resourcement?
0: So here's a beginning of um, what happens in the second half of the book where I start spinning out this theme of authority and, and, So, I mean, the first uh, several chapters are really like very tightly connected because it's all circling around this issue of Tugbeed and Ijtihad. But then by the third chapter, we kind of know the right answer, right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: There's
0: still half the book to go. And so what I start doing then is looking in some ways at more historical topics having to do with authority where I'm kind of looking at how this issue played out in concrete terms about specific debates uh, or involving specific debates. So in particular one thing i look at is the use as you just said the use of philosophy and inter-religious debate also you could think about intra-religious debates so debates say mm. different kinds of christian but to kind of keep things simple I, I focused more on um debates between say christians and muslims which actually happened a lot in the islamic world because there were a lot of christians and also jews living in the muslim um regions Uh, So there was a lot of opportunity for them to have debates, often public debates, actually. And we know this because there are a lot of texts which record them. So something that is interesting that happens here is that obviously if you're, so suppose you're a Christian in the, let's say, 10th century (laughs) arguing with a Muslim, well, quoting the Bible at them is going to have really limited value. And for a Muslim to quote the Quran at a Christian has no value at all right (laughs) because muslims at least think that jesus was a prophet and they so they think and they think that the prophets of the old testament were real prophets so there's they're like there's some commitment to the bible being a useful text from their point of view but christians don't think the quran has any standing at all so um they can't do what you might expect theologians to do sometimes although they do this less than people expect which is to just kind of quote scripture at each other instead they have to find some kind of common ground From which to argue. And what I argue in this part of the book is that they're often finding that common ground in philosophy, or at least in certain parts of philosophy that come to be kind of widely available bits of intellectual weaponry. So, a good example is Aristotelian logic. So, um, you can give an argument based on items in Aristotelian logic and expect any learned person in the Middle East to know what you're talking about. And you can say, no, you're, that's a sophistical argument because that kind of argument falls under the heading of this bogus argument that's identified by Aristotle. Or you can invoke like species and genera from the um, Aristotelian logical curriculum and so on. I mean, the concepts of species and genera. And so you often find this kind of um, neutral, uh, neutral ground, which is made up by the philosophical legacy inherited from the greeks and then of course the muslims are trying to use that to build up an argument in favor of islam whereas the christians are trying to use that to build up an argument in favor of christianity so a good example of this would be that there are muslim authors who argue that the theory or the doctrine the dogma of the trinity in christianity is incoherent because there's no way of expressing the threeness of god without a, claiming that god is three individuals or three species or three genera or three type or has three types of accident. in other words all of the different kinds of properties that are recognized in aristotelian logic and they think that in fact of kindy who's a philosopher i've worked on a lot and who wrote a text along these lines he says the reason i'm using this aristotelian material is that it's familiar to the christians so they kind of can they can appreciate this kind of argument and of course Christians can't come back in fact in this case he was kindy's argument was quoted and refuted by another by, by a Christian named Yaquib Nadi who was also a philosopher um, and he says no you if you knew Aristotle better you'd know that you can use Aristotle to explain exactly how the Trinity works right so they're both trying to defend their own religion but in terms that they're drawing from the same body of Greek sources
1: Would it be a stretch to find continuity in this medieval search for a philosophical common ground with contemporary debates over the relevance of religious argumentation in public policy discussions? I'm thinking of Rawls, John Rawls, who said in like democratic deliberative spaces, you can't bring religious questions in. Like there has to be this core kind of neutral, agreed upon commitment to rap. Like we all have to be as rational as possible, or not maybe not as possible. But we all have to be committed to like rationality in order to make these decisions. Is 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 there kind of a, a continuity between both of those uh, expressions of argumentation or, or arenas of argumentation?
0: That is a great question. Uh, so I think that there's definitely a continuity or a comparison, but there's also a difference. Mm. So the continuity is that there's a kind of idea that you want to argue from shared premises, right? And that, and so Rawls's point is that to have a functioning democracy, it's no good for people to be arguing from premises that are not shared, right? So you should kind of confine yourself to arguments that. Um, are publicly appropriate and publicly appropriate means that they can't, for example, come from one faith tradition. That's not accepted by a a bunch of the rest of the citizens. So I think you're right that there's a comparison there, but the difference is that in the medieval period, this was a purely pragmatic tactical issue as Mm. far as I can tell. So the idea wasn't that it would be kind of illegitimate to invoke your favorite prophet because in fact it's more than legitimate right the prophet is the greatest source of truth and knowledge that has ever been made available to us right if you're a Muslim um so the the problem is not that it's that you know that invoking the prophet's authority will not work on this opponent and if you want to have any hope of convincing them or even winning an argument um, in front of, in front of a, a broad ecumenical audience, then you have to start from a place that's, like I said, neutral ground. But of course, notice that you're also trying to argue to a place that's not neutral ground. So you're trying to start from Aristotelian logic and prove that the Trinity is false, Mm. which is not what Rawls means. So what Rawls means is, well, let's not argue about religion at all. Yes. (laughs) Or let's not, let's not try to, um, use democratic, Uh, decision-making procedure to show that Christianity is true and and that Islam is false. That's presumably not what Rawls had in mind. Um, What he has in mind is that you want to make the space of political discourse entirely public or common, and that's not what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do was like pull the opponent away from a false set of views towards what they considered to be a true set of views, Mm -hmm. starting with something that the opponent would accept. So it's more like a dialectical move. In sure. A principled political move.
1: Sp- speaking of of authority, we, we've spoken so much on the need to trust experts, uh, or or in a justified sense, trust experts. Uh, we've spoken about you know various medieval philosophers having a kind of very high minded view of themselves as the the true uh, elite or coterie who can arrive at Istihad. And in your penultimate chapter, you discuss female philosophers, a rare breed, but nonetheless present in the long Middle Ages. And they don't necessarily engage in the same kind of uh, self-assured argumentation as their male counterparts. You you speak of this rhetorical double strategy that female philosophers and theologians engaged in. Can you tell us what this double strategy was? And-
0: right. So the problem that they're facing, these women philosophers. And here, by the way, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the Islamic world, but there's a lot of stuff in the book that's about Latin Christ- Christendom, um, and also some stuff about Byzantine philosophy. So actually in this chapter, I talk about, um, a couple of broadly speaking Byzantine philosophers, uh, Macrina, the sister of Gregory of Nyssa and, um, Anna Condina uh, who helped, uh, tr- helped, uh, kind of project of commenting on aristotle in the byzantine world um, but generally speaking actually Komnene is a, a kind of um, exception to the rule so there's a problem that women in medieval cultures face which is that there are certain kinds of authority that they just can't lay claim to right for example they can't say you should take me seriously because i'm an expert in aristotelian philosophy reason being that they're not allowed to go to the universities for example in in latin christendom so by definition women are not trans scholastic philosophers they might know something about scholastic philosophy but they're never going to be able to keep up with a male interlocutor who spent 10 20 30 years reading and thinking about aristotle so that's not ground on which women authors can really compete or really feel that they have anything to say I, i suppose you might say that eventually stops being the case um but the Question. So the question of this chapter is, how did these medieval women authors manipulate their own authorial persona in such a way as to claim authority nonetheless? So you might say that the question, to put it very, very baldly, is how do they convince the reader that it's worth reading their words or it's worth listening to them, so to speak? And as you say, I had I this idea that they used a, a kind of double strategy, which is, to simply abandon the realm of as it were normal discourse for example discourse of scholastic theologians and philosophers and they say you you can have that (laughs) like this kind of um you know this this thing where you sort of debate in the familiar terms of the university uh disputed question or whatever instead we're going to speak in two other kinds of register one register is very lofty and transcendent. And this is a register of mysticism. So where we, uh, where the woman will claim to be effectively speaking as God or be the mouthpiece of God. So a good example of this would be in the 12th century Hildegard of Bingen, who has these mystical experiences and then claims the right to explain what they mean. So it's not just that God has shown her some kind of vision. It's that God has given her the ability and the insight to know what the vision is supposed to communicate to humankind. So she's almost claiming to be a kind of prophet here, although, of course, she doesn't describe herself that way. So that's one idea and is maybe the more obvious half of the strategy. The less obvious half of the strategy is is the reverse. So it's to adopt a position that's very humble or even debased, like I am merely a woman I'm a sort of poor, untutored, unlearned creature, um, but you should listen to me anyway. And then the mystery here would be, well, why should we listen to this untutored, unlearned person? And the answer would be, and I think this is actually a really distinctive feature of Christian medieval culture in particular, the answer would be that the Christian God would speak precisely through such a person, right? Because, right, think about um, God becoming Christ, a poor carpenter, so the idea is that God would manifest himself and his wisdom in uh, the lowliest of creatures, the most humble of persons, not in a you know well-to-do noble and not in a highly trained scholastic philosopher, but in, for example, a nun or an anchorite like Julian of Norwich. And so I, I think what, something that's interesting is you can actually even see sometimes the same author sort of moving from these one of these registers to another, like, Oh, I'm just a poor woman. I don't know anything. I'm worthless. Oh, but now listen to me speak in the voice of God. And of course, my my the implication here is that they're at some level doing this as a kind of intentional authorial tactic. So I'm not saying it's a trick and I'm not saying it's not sincere, but I am saying that it's a very effective way to present yourself. And maybe it's the only way you could present yourself as a woman author in the medieval period. And then as a kind of um, final twist in the story at the end of the chapter, I talk about the fact that in the Renaissance, so I focus here especially on the Italian Renaissance, but I think it's also true of some Renaissance figures uh, elsewhere, like in France, you have authors, uh, female authors, who were able to start to sort of uh, speak within the same realm of discourse as men in a way that was impossible in the medieval period. And the reason for this is the rise of humanism so with renaissance humanism the ticket that you need to get into a certain kind of learned discourse is simply that your latin is really really good you don't have to go to the universities you don't have to learn lots and lots of aristotle you just have to be able to write like cicero and this is something women were able to do because they could get private tutoring at home for example so of course it's not something that like poor women were able to do but you have rich women who learn excellent Latin in their youth, and then are hailed as these kind of almost miraculous eloquent authors by their male contemporaries. And they're actually able to compete with and argue with male authors right in the same terms as the male authors themselves are using. So they're just more humanists, except that they're very self-conscious about being women whose humanist skills are on a par with male humanists.
1: So a penultimate question, particularly going off this question of women and women's ability to even do philosophy, is that medieval philosophers spilled a lot of ink on the primacy of rationality, of rational faculties uh, influenced by the Platonic and Aristotelian compositions of the soul. Why did medieval philosophers hold such a high view of rationality, both in a Cognitive and spiritual sense. And what were the implications of that in debates concerning politics, animals, non believers?
0: Right. So now listeners will probably be relieved to know we've gotten to the last chapter. So this is about <laughs> um, a kind of, in a way, a broader issue that's also implicitly the context for the whole book, because all, what we've been talking about is like rational belief formation, uh, following authority, claiming authority. So this is all about like, what do i have to do in order to um identify people as rationally persuasive and to present myself as being rationally persuasive my, to other people right and then i sort of step back at the end and say well actually who cares right like why is it so important to be rational like why not just sort of believe stuff for no good reason for example or believe things that are inconsistent right but why do i have to be rational all the time what's so good about being rational make me be rational as it were or show me why i should be rational and then i look at a range of different answers to this question so one kind of familiar answer from antiquity which gets used a lot in the medieval cultures is that you want the rational part of your soul which is the highest part of your soul to be in control over the lower parts of your soul that are more in, more concerned with things like desire and pleasure so that's that's one kind of answer um but I think uh even that you might say well okay but why right like why? desire and pleasure are great I love pleasure it's one of my favorite things so why can't why does my why do I have to keep restraining my desire for pleasure all the time I'd rather enjoy pleasure than be right or rational and so I think that the kind of deeper answer really comes from Aristotle at least from the medieval point of view and this is that to be rational is to be human So if you're not being rational, you're not being a human, or at least you're not being a good human, you're basically just behaving like an animal. And no one in these cultures wants to be compared to an animal. But if you think through the implications of that, they're actually quite disturbing. So remember that before we were talking about things like intellectuals in the Islamic world, and I think this goes for the Christian realms as well, intellectuals thinking that they're the ones who are perfecting their reason. They're the ones who are not engaging in tuck lead. They're the ones who are responsible for their own beliefs and so on. And so in a sense, all the other people who aren't doing that, who are of course 99.9% of the population are behaving like animals. And so you might wonder, well, aren't these philosophers kind of committed to the idea that these people are no better than animals. Maybe we might even wonder, well, why aren't we allowed to treat them like animals? And of course, this is not just a theoretically possible thing to think. Rather, it's exactly what happened, not so much in Europe itself, but when they discovered so-called discovered the so-called new world, in other words, they made contact with people who are already living in the Americas. This is exactly the attitude that a lot of people took towards them, that they're not rational, therefore they're just animals. And so we can enslave them, we can exploit them, we can do anything we want to them. And this was explicitly said by people who were defending the depredations of Spanish colonialism. Um, And although I don't really get into this because it would chronologically kind of go beyond the bounds of the book, the same thing would be true of the transatlantic slave trade. So you see a lot of discourse around that um, where pro-slavery people are saying that Africans are effectively like animals because they're not rational or they're, they're not capable of exercising reason in a sufficiently perfect way. That we would have to treat them as morally um worthwhile agents and then you have abolitionists protesting against this by making the same kind of arguments that Bartolomé de las casas had been making to um complain about what the spanish were doing in the americas in other words saying well if they're human they're rational right that's what it is to be human and uh you know, you can't just treat animals, sorry, you can't just treat humans as if they were animals. So I think this, uh, this is an interesting topic, because it's one where you kind of start out with something that sounds like a very sort of abstract issue about why rationality and belief might matter. And you wind up with something that explains, or at least provides a context for some of the worst things that have ever
1: happened in human history. Who says philosophy isn't <laughs> doesn't have you know practical implications? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Peter, uh, thank you. That is the all the questions I have on the content of the book. This has been uh, a great conversation. I would have, if time was no constraint, I would have teased out every argument and philosopher and uh, aspect of this book. But that's just. Uh, you know I just like with people who need to rely on talk lead, you know there's still limitations of time and ability. But before we end the podcast, I'd like to ask you about what future projects you have, uh, both regards to your academic scholarly output and then what future kind of episodes or series should we expect on your podcast, history of philosophy without any gaps
0: right okay well maybe I'll start with that since we're on a podcast here uh (laughs) so at the moment um my co-author Chike Jeffers and I are coming towards the end of a long long series covering Africana philosophy which of course gets into some of the things we were just discussing so arguments about slavery in the 19th century for example but we are now up to like the Black Power Movement and the Black Panthers so the I mean we're recording this on a Friday in two days i don't know when this will go up and be available but in two days from when we're discussing this um by my book um we have an episode about the black panthers and we'll have quite a few more episodes to go but we should be done with 20th century africana philosophy by the around the end of 2023 um and then i'll jump to another co-author karen Lai, and we're going to be covering classical chinese philosophy together mm-hmm. so I cover these um, so-called non-Western traditions. I don't really like that expression, but for lack of a better term, these so-called non-western traditions. Um, I cover those in alternating weeks with tradition with the um, podcasts that are about roughly speaking European philosophy. And at the moment, I'm doing the Reformation. So I'm just wrapping up the French Reformation and Renaissance at the moment and then moving on to the British Isles and then the so-called counter-reformation. So, especially in Spain and Portugal, but also a little bit in Italy. And I think that will take me another, I don't know, a couple of years. Mm. Um, and then it's on to the 17th century. So that'll be exciting. So that's what I'm doing in the podcast. And those podcasts, by the way, all appear as books eventually with Oxford University Press. Speaking of which, um, I also have a small book that's coming out with Oxford University Press pretty soon, I hope. It's already written and has been refereed and everything. So it just needs to go through publication and this is um, from their very short introduction series. And it's a very short introduction to Ibn Sina, often better known as Avicenna. But actually, something I like about the book that it is that it's called Ibn Sina, a very short introduction, and Avicenna is in brackets. So we're using his real name, mm. which is nice. So that's already done, but it's uh, coming out soon. And I'm, uh, among other things, involved in a big project to publish several volumes of source books for philosophy in the islamic world after avicenna or Sina, so philosophy responding to him and so that's going to be hundreds and hundreds of pages of translation and analysis of what happened in philosophy in the islamic world in the 12th and 13th centuries which is like really um terra incognita for the most part and i'm hoping to bring the riches of that period of the islamic uh-huh. uh, world philosophically speaking to a wider audience by providing this massive Body of translations together with a whole bunch of um, co authors who have been postdocs on a project here in Munich. So there's lots going on.
1: All fascinating. I commend your work ethic, Peter. I mean, that just the amount of both uh, podcasting and writing you're doing is incomprehensible to me. Uh, just one final question before we go. You're in the 17th century now with history, philosophy without any gaps. Is, is this a project that will, I mean, how do you see it ending is what i'm trying i mean i obviously the history <laughs> of philosophy will not end it will keep going hope, hope you know hopefully uh but w- w- you it's taken you i mean i remember listening to your medieval stuff when i was in high school and that was about 10 years ago right and now mm-hmm. you're getting to a point where there's this huge <laughs> influx of philosophers i mean wh- where do you see the the podcast in 10 or 15 years
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's especially difficult because I've um, made things harder for myself by trying to cover all of these non-European traditions. Mm -hmm. So even after we do classical China, I'm hoping to continue to spend half the time on these non-European traditions. So I'd I'd love to do a series on philosophy in the Americas, for example. I'd like to cover Mm -hmm. philosophy in Japan, Mm -hmm. Korea. Um, There's a lot of Indian philosophy we didn't cover in the first series on that, Mm -hmm. and there will, will be a lot of Chinese philosophy that I'm not doing with Karen Lai we're really only doing classical chinese philosophy so that alone would take you know a decade's worth of work or more and then um like you say once so I'm in the 16th century now but once i get to the 17th century like there, there's this explosion of works so i think it will take me several hundred episodes to get through the 17th and 18th centuries um which means it will take me years and years so i mean i, I when people ask me how long i'm going to keep going i always (laughs) say that i have no plans to stop anytime soon And and beyond that it seems like tempting fate so something i've i've started saying more recently is that i don't think i'm going to stop i think i'm going to be stopped like by age or the health situation or death or or just like I can't do it anymore. I don't have the energy or something.
1: I think but you'll get anyway. to I think you'll get to Heidegger's being in time and you'll you'll nope, I'm you'll, done. <laughs> you, yeah. Five pages in you're like, this is it. It's the gaps are good. I fulfilled the gaps in. Okay. Well, Peter again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. To all those listening, you have been listening to New Books in Philosophy, a channel of the New Books Network, talking about Peter Adamson's new book, Don't Think for Yourself, Authority and Belief in Medieval Philosophy, published by University of Notre Dame Press 2022. I've been your host, Jackson Reinhardt. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day.